Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, with impeachment and stimulus dominating the news, we're going to take a look at the important policy conversations that are getting lost in the mix with Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. How, how have you been over the past few days? I'm uh, doing fine. You know, we keep having uh, winter storm uh, warnings, but never really get any snow. So it's been uh, uh, really disappointing, actually, at some level. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 snowing out there, but nothing's sta- sticking around, which, you know, to be fair, I'm OK with. I went to Vermont for December, got my snow fixed. Uh, <laughs> so I'm good with it. I'm, I'm done. I like my snow on the 24th and the 25th. And then after that, you know, it's whatever. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get much today, so. Yeah. So anyways, um, let's jump into things. As I mentioned in my intro, you know, impeachment and the ongoing debate over the stimulus package are really just dominating the news. It's really all people can hear about. Um, but there are very important policy conversations getting lost in the mix. And so I hope we can just jump right into some of those and, and talk through them. So let's start with the antitrust law. Uh, last week, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who also chairs the Senate's uh, antitrust subcommittee, introduced a bill in the hopes of reshaping uh, the country's antitrust laws. What problem is the bill seeking to solve? I'm not sure, to be honest. The U.S. has a fairly disciplined approach to antitrust uh, reviews, whether it's uh, a merger and acquisition and whether that can go through or the conduct of a particular um, company. And so, you know, we, we, we go through a fairly rigorous thing where we say, OK, what's the market in question that that may or may not be uh, having effective competition? Um, you know, what's the, the goal of this? It wants to enhance consumer welfare. So would this make people better or worse off? And, and, and we, we follow that discipline pretty carefully. What we've seen, though, is a, a sort of populist style dislike for some companies like Facebook, Google. You know, Amazon, name the big the big tech companies in particular uh, right now, and the idea that somehow we got to rein them in, and and this bill basically opens up the door to rein them in in a way that um, wouldn't really be possible under the current reviews. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you know how we currently enforce our antitrust laws, but w- what are the actual um, changes that this bill is seeking to make? There are three important changes. Uh, uh, Important change number one is that it is no longer required that the enforcement authority, whether that's the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, identify the market in question. And, and that's generally a really important part of an antitrust lawsuit, uh, uh, for example. So, for example, um, is Google dominating the ad market? Well, do you mean online ads, uh, online pop up ads? Do you mean uh, online ads plus radio ads, online plus radio plus TV? billboards on the side of the road, what's the market that you're talking about? So that market definition question is often crucial in these in these debates. And, and the bill would, would relieve the enforcement responsibility of actually identifying what the market is. That That's really a problem in my view, because um, usually you're competing for something. Like, you know, you're competing for a gold medal. You're competing for, uh, in this case, the sale of a good or service. And the competition is what we care about. That competition has to be in a constrained area. I mean, if it's if it's not, then we don't really know what's going on. So that's the first big change. Um, second big change is to change the the objective. The objective right now is um, the the reviews to make sure that we do not lessen consumer welfare. 
trying to you know make sure that consumers are as good off as possible. Uh, this loosens the standard to um, the risk that you might materially affect consumer welfare. So, you know, basically there's a risk of almost everything in life. And so that 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 opens up the, the door to stop things um, a lot more easily and and then basically uh, end mergers and acquisitions and, and allow you to step in and stop a, a business from doing whatever has, has bothered you. And then the third, especially in the merger and acquisition uh, area, is we switch the burden of proof, right? You know, uh, the burden of proof is now on the the enforcer, the government, to prove that this would uh, reduce consumer welfare. Now the burden of proof would be on the companies to prove that what they're doing wouldn't make things worse off. So we have gone from innocent until proven guilty to guilty until you prove yourself innocent. That's kind of an affront to the basic American system of justice and, and certainly makes it way less likely that firms would engage in a merger or an acquisition when they would have to have this incredibly costly proof uh, against all possible charges that that it's, that it's um, uh, dominating the market. So uh, all of this, I think, um, runs the risk of stopping things that would benefit consumers. And that, that's 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 the downside of this. You, you don't want uh, to um, get in a situation where you're just stopping everything and, and not getting the kinds of innovations and advances that we've seen in the tech area, in particular pharmaceuticals. You know, look at the COVID um, a response thing. Th th those are important parts of market dynamics that you don't want to interfere with. Yeah, those seem like some big changes and um, makes me wonder, will this bill actually solve the problems it sets out to fix? Will it create new, bigger problems? Will it will it encourage more innovation and competition? I, I, I'm worried that this would be steps in the wrong direction. It certainly opens it up to stopping activities, mergers, acquisitions, business practices, for reasons that have nothing to do with competition, right? If you haven't defined the market, you can't be about the competition in that market. It's just like, wow, really not too happy with you today, whack. And so that that's what you want to avoid. I, I, but it is a pain to have a disciplined system. I, I get that. Um, but checking those boxes is good public policy because it allows everyone to know the, the, the playing field that we're on and, and how the rules work. Yeah. Yeah. What about in Congress right now? Does this bill have bipartisan support? What is the likelihood we'll see it pass? I, I don't know what the, the uh, whip count would look like right now, uh, but this is a bill that would have to pass in regular order. You can't use anything special to get it through. So in the Senate, it would need 60 votes to get to a vote for final passage. And, and that means you have to get uh, 10 Republicans on board. And I think that's that's a hurdle at this point. Something we'll have to keep an eye on. Let's turn to regulatory policy. Last week on the podcast, I talked with um, AAF's Dan Bosch. Uh, we discussed President Biden's memorandum that changes how this administration will review regulations. Um, we've talked a little bit about this um, at the beginning of the year. What do you see as the bottom line impact of this shift? Well, this is a really interesting um, uh, item, and I think it's fantastic that, that Dan caught this. Um, you know, for those who haven't heard about this, the the modernizing the regulatory review executive order essentially tells uh, the director of the Office of Management Budget to get the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs to do their review of regs in a different way. Number one, to pay more attention to unquantifiable benefits uh, in, in deciding whether a rule passes muster. And number two, telling OIRA to, to help agencies find rules that have unquantifiable benefits, really changing the role of uh, OIRA from reviewer to advocate in, in a way that, that's really at odds with its history. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, uh, 
And it came up in the confirmation hearing at the Senate Budget Committee uh, of the administration's pick to run OMB uh, near Tandon. Senator Grassley asked um, uh, Ms. Tandon uh, about this modernization rule. And then she's like, look, this is not a big deal. Uh, this is just, you know, we're going to get more information. There might be unquantifiable benefits out there. She also, for, for the record, mentioned unquantifiable costs, which the EO doesn't. So that, that was kind of interesting. Um, she said, they might be out there and we want to know about those. Um, what that doesn't answer is what you will do with it. Sure, you have more information, but does that information trump the, 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 the traditional benefit cost analysis? Does the benefit cost analysis trump that? Do you turn it into numbers and add it to the benefit cost analysis? What do you do with that? And that that becomes the issue and just in the mechanics of, of reviewing a reg. And, and that remains unclear. She also mentioned quite clearly that, you know, Part of the intent here was to, to get a handle of the impact of regulations on uh, equality across uh, communities of color, income distribution, some of the things where we're seeing uh, differences in outcomes, and, and we don't really want to do that. So we're going to try to take that into account. So A-plus for Dan Bosch for recognizing what this was and, and our suspicions on how it might impact the, the rulemaking process. We still don't really know. So more to come on this one. We'll be, we'll be back, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things I found when talking to Dan last week, you mentioned it, you know, she mentioned it in her uh, confirmation hearing, but the the EO doesn't talk about the um, the costs that might not be there, which I, I was like, it seemed like it was tilting it just in the benefits direction. Again, I, you know, I, I like the, the benefit cost framework because of the discipline it, it imposes on the those making the rules, right? Go out and and find the costs, add them up. I recognize that not every cost is going to be quantifiable. Right? You know, we we actually put costs in for loss of life, but how we quantify them, I'm subject to a tremendous debate. So there are lots of things where you think about it. Like, I don't know how to value that cost. And similarly, benefits add up the benefits, and there'll be some unquantifiable benefits. Um, but if you do that, you know how big those unquantifiable benefits say have to be to tip the balance. If, you, if, if and, and then you can do sort of a gut check, okay? They have to be 700 trillion a year. Nah, don't think so. They have to be $5. Okay, I'm in, right? You know, so the framework is a really valuable framework. And, and the fear here is they're, they're, they're gonna essentially toss the framework. Mm -hmm. What about economic effects of this? What sort of effects will, will these changes have on the economy? That depends on the rules that we get out. In the end, this is a, a process for re reviewing rules. It's the rules themselves that have the economic impact. You know, rules for the uh, scrubbers on smokestacks uh, at, at electricity plants and elsewhere mean that you're spending money on scrubbers and, and on smokestacks, not something else, whether it's raises for the workers or um, some some expansion of capacity. Uh, and and that that is the economic impact. It's the the shift in the way we use the, the dollars in the economy away from things that we might at the moment really value, like getting paid to, to some other thing, which presumably we value cleaner air. But is it is it enough? And, and that's always the test. So we saw in the Obama administration uh, lots and lots of rulemaking activity of, on a large scale. Um, you know, Dan Bosch, Dan Goldbeck and, and the Reg Rodeo uh, crowd has um, added that up to eight hundred ninety billion dollars of, of major rules over the course of those eight years, if this opens the door for more rules and more expensive rules, that that, that would have an enormous impact.
Mm-hmm. One of the things I like that that both Dan's have started doing in their uh, Week in Regs column is they're comparing the Trump, Obama, and Biden regulatory um, to this point, which I think would be helpful as we watch for its impact on the economy. Yeah, I, you know, this is just spitballing, but you know, one of the things that I've been playing around with is we have some metrics of tightness, looseness of monetary policy. Um, there, there, there are formal ways to sort of put put that into into uh, calculation. Uh, there's a, a, a natural metric for the looseness of fiscal policy, how much stimulus you're providing, things like that. It would be nice to augment that with the sort of macro stance of regulatory policy. And this tracker would do that. Are, are you, you know, essentially way past the historical trends and thus having a, a negative impact on, on the economy or, or having less and perhaps a positive impact? And then we'd have a much more, I think, comprehensive view of the impact of the government on the growth environment. Monetary and fiscal are, are not everything. Regulatory is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On another topic that, that you've been talking about, um, uh, housing finance, uh, you wrote about this recently in your recent DISH column. Uh, you wrote about the best worst case scenario for the housing finance giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Would you walk us through your argument? Yeah. So remember uh, what seems like 100 years ago, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were private companies that had government charters, and those government charters gave them some very special privileges. They had lines of credit at the Treasury. Uh, their debt could be held in unlimited amounts by by uh, banks, for example, whereas you know a bank's not allowed to overinvest in one single thing in case the bank would get in trouble. That wasn't true. They could buy as much GSE debt as they wanted. Um, a whole bunch of things, um, which allowed them to borrow cheaply, uh, to hold very little capital. And then uh, take um, uh, their their um, funds and go out and buy mortgages, put a guarantee on those mortgages, turn them into mortgage-backed securities, and sell them off to investors. And they also held some of them. So in the end, they were this very large um, uh, entity that had two lines of business. One was a guarantee business, right? We, we guarantee this mortgage, and if if not, we make the payments on behalf of the person who took the loan. And number two, you took these MBSs and stuck them in their own uh, portfolio. So it was a big hedge fund, borrow, invest in something. It was a hedge fund invested in one thing, no diversification. And when it went south, it went south in a huge way during the, the housing collapse and the, the subprime mortgage crisis. So they end up as wards of the state. And the question is, what becomes their future? The Trump administration has worked aggressively after all these many years to turn them back into private companies, but not exactly the same as what they were before. So in particular, um, they need to hold more capital. And so for the first time, the FHFA, their regulator, issued a rule on how much capital do these uh, giants have to hold to make them look more like uh, big private banks and and hold capital comparable to the big private banks. Um, Problem, uh, they're currently wards of the state, so they had to also change their agreement with Treasury to allow them to retain some of their earnings so they can accumulate capital. And indeed, what they're now allowed to do is retain all of their earnings to to accumulate capital more rapidly. That's a good thing in my view. Um, Not quite as good as having lots of competitors that do the same thing as them. There's still a duopoly, just two of them, but a a better uh, finance duopoly makes a lot more sense. Um, And uh, they, they need to have restrictions on their line of business, and the FHFA has got them out of different things that were that were uh, very profitable, but probably highly risky, and likely to send it back to the taxpayers. So restrict that. They got the Financial Stability Oversight Council to 
to designate the activity that they're in, making a mortgage-backed securities as a systemically risky activity. So that that formally puts the their eyeball on Fannie and Freddie. Should they ever become private entities, they don't get to walk away from a lot of things, uh, and they could be uh, held to a higher level of capital uh, on those grounds alone. So they've done a lot of things. They've done um, everything, in my view, except turn them loose with some better competition. So that's the best of the you know sort of bad outcomes. The worst outcome would have been just send them back the way they were, and and now I was terrified about that. The next worst outcome would have been keep them as these weird wards of the state, which doesn't make a lot of sense and continually exposes the taxpayer. So we're, we're in a sort of middle ground. It'll be interesting to see where the Biden administration takes it from here. Yeah. So, I mean, do they have they signaled anything about where they'll take us? I mean, will we see them and get out of these war, this war of the state status? So weirdly enough, despite the fact it feels like they, they've just gone at 100 miles an hour in every area, there's some places where they've been relatively silent. This is one. Uh, housing, finance, financial services in general haven't been at, at the front edge of, of the Biden policy push. Interesting. Uh, in another dish column that you wrote uh, recently, you noted that tariffs are among the most contentious policy legacies of the Trump admin, uh, era, and they are a diff- difficult challenge for the Biden administration. Why can't the Biden administration just reverse all these tariffs? Why, why is this such a challenge? So there there are different kinds of tariffs. Um, so there the Trump administration had this very, very liberal use of national security uh, designations. So tariffs in the interest of national security, that's where the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, came from. I, I don't think that designation ever really made any sense. I don't think it really stands up to any scrutiny. And I, I expect those to go away. I mean, quite frankly, I don't view Canada as a big threat. And, um, you know, so that, that should go away. Uh, there are some uh, which are um, meant to relieve the domestic industry of, of, from international pressures, whether the pressures are cheating or not, right? It's just sort of a, a tariff wall to give them a timeout to, to do things. And then the, the third category is basically China, like you know, things, things that went on in the, the tit for tat with China. I, I don't think they have the luxury of, of dropping the China tariffs abruptly because that would signal that somehow they didn't care about China. And they have said quite clearly they think China's uh, the preeminent threat on the globe from a strategic point of view, an economic power point of view. You know, So let's put those aside. Some of these ones, the, 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 the tariffs on solar panels, were about the domestic industry. And um, the reason they have come to the front of, of my attention is that the stated top priority for the Biden administration is the climate change and the need for clean energy. At the center of that is going to be renewable sources of electricity like solar and and, uh, wind, but solar. And these make solar power more expensive, period. And um, uh, that's that's not something you want when you're going to have a big push to move towards solar power. Uh, They also don't make sense from a sort of protection point of view because the power that's going to matter for the, the climate change agenda is utility scale, you know, Big fields of solar panels. Those are particularly have they're two-sided uh, solar panels. They're called bifacial solar panels, and and they and the modules that they construct them, they're not. There isn't a domestic market for those. They're all imported. So we're not protecting something with these tariffs because there's nothing. And, and in the years the tariffs have been around, it hasn't come into existence. So let's stop making it more expensive. And um, if our producers who do make panels for residential homes, so smaller units decide to get into the utility scale business, 
um, let, let's make sure that they, they don't have a, uh, a tariff making the modules, the inputs more expensive so that we could compete internationally and maybe do better on clean energy elsewhere. So this just seems like it's it's the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's not generating any benefits. So um, I'm hoping the Biden folks will walk away from those quickly. Yeah, it seems like it should be a no brainer. I mean, is there a process? I have thought that and I've been wrong. So, you know, um, fair enough. Fair enough. There's a process to, to, to get rid of this. There's, there's a there's a review built into the tariff order. The review is essentially now. And, and so one of the reasons I think it's uh, important to, to highlight this is this is the moment when they could make a decision. Gotcha. I'm moving on to to another topic that seems to be getting lost, which is kind of surprising in a way, which is, you know, health, uh, some some uh, policy topics in healthcare. Let's talk about that. Um, the Biden administration has talked about a COBRA subsidy, which I believe they've included in their recovery plan, but it's not yeah. really being talked about. Um, Christopher Holt recently explained in his weekly uh, checkup column why this policy doesn't really make sense right now. Um, would you walk us through what's happening here? Yeah, so um, uh, COBRA is a, a um, an acronym for an, an old Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, right? The Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. Uh, it, it contained this provision that says, okay, um, I have uh, lost my job, and uh, as a result, um, my employer insurance is going to go away. I can pay the whole premium, the part my employer paid and I paid, um, and hold on to that insurance, uh, and I can, I can do that for 18 months, and you can extend that in some circumstances. So, so it's a way to give me uh, a temporary bridge and maintain my current insurance. Since insurance usually comes with a set of hospitals, doctors who are in network and all that, I get to maintain uh, the the my my care network. And Chris and I agreed, you know, when we talked about this uh, last, you know, March, April, May, June, that it would make sense in the face of 20 million job losses to help out in paying these COBRA um, payments so that people would stay attached to their, their care networks in the middle of a pandemic. That seemed like a sensible thing. It also seemed like uh, most of those layoffs would be temporary, right? We'd, we'd sort of have a layoff, we'd sort of get the pandemic under control, people would come back. So temporary um, bridge, temporary help in the financing all made a lot of sense. We roll the clock forward, it's been a year. Um, there is good reason to suspect uh, two things. Number one, there aren't as many job losers right now. We're not seeing mass layoffs. And so there aren't new flows into the, the pool of the unemployed who might be looking for the COBRA help. And for those who've been out for what is nearly a year, it's most likely that job's not coming back. And so COBRA doesn't make sense for uh, the, the permanent job loss. Um, instead, there, there are other things out there. There's the Affordable Care Act exchanges. You can go get... Uh, um, uh, a policy there, and there is subsidies for those to help people afford them, and and for for lower income individuals, Medicaid is out there, and so it 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 was a good idea whose time has passed. I think this is a fair way to summarize Chris's view, and, and that makes sense to me. Um, nevertheless, it's 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 in this uh, this particular bill. It's an 85% of the premium will be paid uh, by the government, and 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 we'll see if there's much take up. There was a, a similar provision back in the, the Great Recession. Um, I think it paid 50%. Essentially, nobody used it. And so we'll see if we have the same fate here. Mm -hmm. So the bill is making its way through, uh, I think, committee markup started this week. Is that something that will likely remain in the bill? Um, I mean, obviously, we have the Senate rules aside, but um, will that impact it at all? 
uh, this 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 is this is the easy call because this is existing law and you're just adding money and that's what reconciliation is about. Gotcha. One final topic today and that's labor policy. There's a rather fierce debate over the Biden administration's proposed uh, increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, the Congressional Budget Office um, uh, looked at this proposal and noted it would cost, uh, I think, something like 1.4 million jobs by 2025, um, but would lift um, uh, 900,000 people out of poverty. Uh, what do you make of these numbers? Uh, the, these are entirely consistent with previous CDO um, uh, estimates, and, and they fit the pattern that we know about sharp minimum wage increases. There are a lot of people who will be unaffected, and um, because they're already paid more, so that's fine. Then there will be some who manage to hold on to their job and get a raise. That's where the anti-poverty impact comes from. It's relatively modest. Uh, and then there are those who are at the margins, the least skilled, least experienced, who will not get a job, especially now. We're in this have these mass layoffs, they'll just not get to go back to work because they will be too expensive. And the small businesses will, can't stand the, the cost increase. And, and that's where you can get the job loss um, out of those people in that those sectors. Uh, CBO did a really good job of identifying what we were asking employers to do. It's at face value, you're asking them to pay $500 billion more in wages. That's just a mandate. There's no more money from anywhere. So that's got to come from somewhere. And one of the things they do is they get rid of 170 billion of that mandate by not hiring people and by cutting hours. And so in the end, they still have to pay 330 billion in, in, in higher wages. And, and that's that's an impact on uh, the, the capacity of, of those businesses to expand. Yeah, something we'll have to continue to watch for. But Doug, we're out of time for today. Thanks for joining us um, to talk about all this. I think it's an important to keep an, an eye on these other policy conversations as you know the big the big ticket items still make their way through. But I do have to ask you one last question before you go. Football is over for us. What are you doing for entertainment for this weekend? Probably pulling what little hair I have left out. No, I'll end up watching golf. Um, uh, <laughs> games will be on. Um, you know, I'm an addict. I, I will watch any sport. Um, there could be a good women's field hockey game from Northern Ireland. I don't know, but I will find it and I will watch it. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, we only have to make it through the next, uh, what, four, three or four weeks because March Madness just came out and said how they're doing their their tournament this year and the NCAA for basketball. And it looks like we're going to have a huge first weekend where you're going to have the play-in games on Thursday the first round, second round, all in that same weekend, which I think is going to be just an amazing weekend of, of for us sports fanatics out there. So get ready. It's going to be great. <laughs> Doug, thanks again for joining us. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.